Hi, I'm Eileen Mogus. I'm a coach, facilitator, and public speaker. And I'm Daphne Tsanko Kasambala, former banker, entrepreneur, and mentor. We're longtime friends and African women in the diaspora, talking to women like us about the things that matter to us. And this is Soulfully Podcast. We are joined today by the lovely Rehema Shabaya, who is a senior manager at Accenture, which is a global consulting firm. Rehema talks us through her journey um, as uh, an immigrant to the United Kingdom and all the way through to her career. It's um, a fascinating and journey, isn't it? It's really, really interesting. Really, really fascinating. What I love about this journey, and she touches on it, is how she, it wasn't a straight journey from A to B. A to Z is a it's sort of like a round the houses in her way of finding herself and finding her place, but um, you know, not doing things by the book in a way, I guess, you know, as one would have hoped for as a as what an African immigrant's child would have been expected yes. to do. Isn't it isn't it wonderful to see um what what I'm finding more and more with our podcast is a lot of experiences that you may even have forgotten about, which are you think are unique to yourself, but which you share with yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. You know the the whole yeah um, community here of people who experiences who have experiences that are very similar to to my own. Yes, it's yes, of career change and doing things differently, right? And and also yes. I think the other thing that the other thing that I find so encouraging for taking away from this interview with with Rahema is there's um, there's no regret for decisions made that at the time might have been seen as the wrong choice, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's so good. I think we can spend so much of our life caught up in regret about doing it the wrong way. It really spoke to me actually about some of the things I think, oh, I wish I hadn't done it that way or I shouldn't have done it yeah. that way. And then actually you're like, wait a minute, if you, if you were to go back and live your life, would you do it differently? Um, if you did it differently, would you be the person you are here now? And the answer, ab- answer is absolutely not. And I think mm-hmm. um, it just speaks to the fact that it's the dirt that makes you grow. It's the, it's, yeah. the, it's, it's the challenges that make you grow. And whilst it would be nice to have a smooth, a smooth path to where I am now, it's true. If you change the timeline, you change the outcome. Yeah, and I'm actually quite liking the outcome. And I think that right? you know all of the, yeah. <laughs> like, so really, I was having a know. chat. I was having a chat with somebody who's just about to turn forty last week, and I just said, "Look, there's the best days because there's all this fear about you know getting older, and you know, she's like, oh my gosh, I, what have I done? I'm not yet. I'm, about, I'm turning forty this week, and I was like, you have no idea. It just gets better." <laughs> Like, it just gets better. This, you know, life, you know, they're saying youth is wasted on the young. I don't think that's true, but there is something about the wonder and the brilliance of just getting older and and the joy of being more comfortable with yourself and being able to look back and see all those things that felt very risky or very um, challenging decisions. Actually, when you look back on them, you can see why they were good and you can see mm. the beauty from the ashes, you know, of what you mm. thought was, you know, you're burning your life down to the ground. And now you're like, oh, no, no, I was just kindling a flame. Absolutely. And so before we go on to our episode, let's just uh, remind you to, if you haven't already subscribed, please do. If you know somebody who would benefit from uh, this podcast, please let them know, share the yes, news indeed. that we're here and keep listening. Yeah. And here's Rama. Well, we are very excited to welcome our guest today, um, Rehema Shabaya, the one and only, who is not just a guest, but a a really, really good friend of mine. And um, just to give you a little bit of background about who Rehema is, Rehema Shabaya is a senior delivery lead at Accenture and specializes in leading large and complex IT transformation programs for consumer goods, retail and manufacturing clients. She has over 14 years experience working in technology across Europe and the UK. 
She is also a passionate advocate for inclusion and diversity. Rehema coaches and mentors new graduate and apprentice joiners at Accenture and regularly supports Accenture Decoded and Tech Taster Week immersive events where school leavers explore careers in technology. She has partnered with Coding Black Females on demystifying roles in tech to encourage black women into the tech industry. She's led skill sessions for the annual Bright Network Graduates Careers Fair and spoken at the We Are Tech Women conference on barriers that women of color face in the tech industry. Welcome, Rahema Shabaya. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to be here. So, Rahema. Yes. Obviously, this is a incredible um, bio that you have and it's full of all sorts of things. Um, now, before we get into this diverse and dense bio of yours, um, tell us a little bit, because of course, I Rehema knows well enough that I kind of don't understand anything she does. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a general joke that I really appreciate her breadth of diversity and her breadth of interest, but as really good friends, and we lived together for a while, um, about 15 years ago or something like that, yeah. that long ago. Mm. Um, so I, I sit in awe of much of what you do because I Thank don't you. understand it. It's very far <laughs> removed from where my brain goes. And so we look forward to un unpacking what you do. Mm -hmm. But before we get into the ins and outs of your career, tell us a little bit about you. You were born in where? So I was born in Kenya. Um, mm -hmm. I'm one of three girls, I have two sisters. So we moved to the UK in the mid eighties and I grew up in Cambridge. So the reason we moved to the UK was my dad came to study. He wanted to pursue some postgraduate studies. So as a family, we joined him in the UK and the plan had been to be here for three years and then effectively go back to Kenya. But we settled as children in schools and my dad continued to pursue his studies. So, you know, we ended up settling in the UK. So I've pretty much grown How up. How old about were you when you moved? Uh, I was eight when we moved over. Do you re do you remember that um, culture shift? Yes, I remember the day. I remember landing at Heathrow and just thinking this is a strange place to be. I'd never flown, so it was my first time flying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my little sister was adamant she didn't want to take off her shoes the whole flight. She was like, I'm not taking my shoes off. So that was quite funny. <laughs> And she was only two she was only two years old but she was adamant no one's gonna touch my shoes um the thing that really struck me about moving to the uk at that time because we landed in august and yeah. in africa or in kenya the sun sets at six and rises at right, six right. so the long summer days were very strange initially because my mum would put us to bed at seven or eight and she'd be like go to bed i'm like but it's still bright outside it's not time for bed <laughs> now is not the time <laughs> now is not the time and then just i think just navigating because cambridge is, at the time was a small city there wasn't many other black families you could probably count the black families on your hand at the time so going to school and being the only black kid in the classroom of maybe 200 students navigating the city as a black family understanding the food um my parents had these old friends that they'd met in kenya who were living in buckinghamshire in ellsbury and we went for Sunday lunch one afternoon and she put out the whole china set with like little cucumber sandwiches and little cakes. And that was lovely. But I just couldn't process that her dog was in the house. I was like, for us in Africa, <laughs> dogs are outside. This dog was on the sofa. It was licking her face. And I was just looking at my mom going, why is there a dog in the house? <laughs> but, um, yeah, so settling in was an initial shock. But I think when I think back now, my mom had actually done a lot to prepare us because she'd spent weeks and months drilling sort of English classes into us so that we had good English when we arrived and then just helping us to just navigate being in a new country she was because my dad had been in the army when we were in Kenya we'd moved around a lot anyway so we were quite used to picking up and settling somewhere new so the transition wasn't too bad it was just the cultural differences of being African versus English yeah. the food the diet the climate all those things were just very different but I think when you're eight years old you don't think too much about it you're more focused on I guess I don't know settling in with your friends at school and just playing did you find that you you were able to settle in um it's funny I've never really thought too much about it but when I look back I think I adjusted quite quickly um I brought myself to school every day um because my mum had done the English lessons it was easy to understand the teaching and the material 
and then making friends. My dad was part of a student body because he was studying. So all the families sort of lived together in halls of residence. So we got to mix with other kids in the same school whose parents were also studying at Cambridge. So it all felt quite seamless when I look back on it now. It didn't feel like a massive transition, even though it was in the sense that we'd moved from one country to another. Rehema, did you stay on in Cambridge after the initial three years was, was done or did you move somewhere else? I actually ended up, um, so my father went back to Kenya for a, about a year because they'd asked him to go back because he was on sabbatical. So they'd asked him to go back into the army and back into his old job. So my parents moved back to Kenya with my younger sister and they left me and my older sister here. My older sister at the time was um, training to be a nurse. So she was in like uh, post-school nurse training. And I then applied and got into a boarding school. So I went to a boarding school in Suffolk. And the idea was that for that one year, I would be in boarding school with guardian parents whilst my parents were in Kenya. And I think boarding school is probably more of a shocker than coming into the UK and just joining a state primary school. Um, I was away from home. We were living in dormitories, six to a dorm, all girls. Not that that was a problem back then. Um, But just the experience of being away from home and then physically away from your parents, because I knew they were abroad. I didn't know they were in the country. And then um, I had guardians. I had Dutch, these two lovely um, couple who were Dutch that my parents had met through the church. And they were basically supporting by looking after me. So every three weeks I'd go home and spend the weekend with them. And again, that was quite a, when I think back to it, it was quite a cultural change because the Dutch are very different from the English. And so she, she ran her household in a very Dutch way. They were really tall, I remember, because I was like 11 and I was short. And they were like six foot five and giants. And then they'd also adopted a lot of children. So they had quite a cultural, diverse family, despite being Dutch. So, um, again, the experience was different, but I never felt um, less than or singled out because I was black and they were a white family. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at boarding school, again, being a minority you know we were 500 students in my year and I was the only black girl in the whole school and so and being in Suffolk as you if you've ever been to Suffolk it's a very kind of quiet village type uh setup so again just not seeing people who look like me often um was something I just got used to and in the end I just thought I'm always going to be on my own I'm always going to be the minority in that sense and I think I understood that quite early on age 11 at this boarding school can I ask, when you say something you got used to not being, not seeing anyone like you, do you think it had an impact on the way you viewed yourself? Definitely, definitely. Because then when I so grew up in Cambridge, went to boarding school in Suffolk, did my GCSEs and A-levels in Cambridge, and then obviously moved to London for my university. When I moved to London, that was a real cultural shock because all of a yeah. sudden I was in a city with so many more black people. Black folk! <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was just like, oh my gosh. So I found another challenge on the other side with the black people because I'd grown up in Cambridge. I guess I'd developed quite English mannerisms, mindsets, cultural references. So when I moved to London, all the black people were like, you're not really black, you're really white. Like you're really bougie. And I was like, no, but I am an African. (laughs) Um, You know, so navigating that cultural difference and obviously in London you've got all the mix of ethnicities across Africa across the Caribbean and so just learning those nuances of how the cultures interact you know the tensions and the differences it took a while but that was probably the biggest shock more so than moving to the UK moving to London and having to navigate a new world where I'm not so much a minority because there's other black people around me. Where did you gravitate towards? And the reason why I ask this is I know that um, there's, there's someone I know who was in who was a teenager or a young adult in the 80s who at that point there was hardly, there was less integration between um, black people from a West African, uh, sorry, mm. a, a West Indian background and mm. black people with an African background. And that's mm. slowly changed now. But I'm just wondering... And you being um, Kenyan rather than Nigerian, which is the dominant yeah. African uh, group, let's say in London, where did you yeah. gravitate towards? Or were you still hanging out with white people? Or what, what was the situation there? It was probably a mixed social circle because I went to the School of Oriental and African Studies as part of the University of London. So the subject matter encourages diversity in terms of the student body. So we had people from all over the world in the uni, but I found that I tended to hang out more so with the Ghanaians 
mm. than, for example, the Caribbeans and obviously the Nigerians, because they're, they're quite a big populist group in London. Um, but I also had a, because I think I'd grown up in Cambridge and I'd had the boarding school experience, I still had quite a big group of white friends as well, mostly mm. US or uh, from Europe, but I still had a group of white friends. So for me, I felt a bit like an interloper. I had different mm. social groups that I could effectively mix with. Um, sometimes it was a challenge to bring all my social friends together because obviously the different backgrounds, different cultural references. But I think by nature, I've always been a bit of a, a free float. I don't like to necessarily be fixed into one group or one category. So that experience for me at uni worked really well because I got to mix with different groups depending on mood, need mm. and whatever was going on at the time. Yeah. And then, so you, after uni, so you at SOAS, what did you study at SOAS? So originally, um, just to digress on my SOAS story, so I went to uni the first time in 97, showing my age. And then um, I kind of just, I was sort of dealing with a lot of emotional stuff. My parents had just got divorced as I was going to uni. So um, my focus wasn't quite there. So after the second year, I took a break and decided I just need to regroup and think about my life. And then I went back to uni. Um, in yeah, 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 but stop there, stop there. Let's go back to this break because it's a very interesting part yeah. of your life. You take yeah. this break and what do you do? So I took a break because I just not been on top of my life, life admin, as I call yeah. it. Mm. Um, I'd ended up in a lot of student debt because, as you know, you, you're 19. They give you two grand in the bank for the, <laughs> for the term and you think you've won the lottery. So you just go and spend. So I bought, yeah, I bought, I think I bought a Walkman, I bought a stereo, like a get A Walkman, now that gives away your age. I'm balling, you know, this is me, I've arrived. So progressively, obviously, I got into debt and I wasn't managing my finances very well and that was impacting my studies. So at the end of the second year, I wasn't passing. So they said, you need to kind of think about what you want to do. And I was like, okay. So the in the break, um, I'd accumulated a lot of debt, so I had to move back home. Uh, and just start again. I had to um, get a, a part-time job. I was working at The Gap. I got a part-time job and I had about six grand to clear. So I was like, okay, I've got to pay off this debt. So I spent about two years clearing the debt. And in that time, I was reflecting about going back to uni, but also um, what I should have mentioned at the start, my father came to Cambridge to study theology. So he'd orig originally trained as a reverend in the Methodist church. But when we moved to the UK, we moved across to the Anglican church. So I do remember when I was being evicted at that time when everything had sort of fallen apart and I sat in this room having phoned my mum and said, I'm completely desolate, I've got no money, I'm about to be evicted, can you come and pick me up tomorrow? And I remember sitting in that room and I just prayed, I said, God, if you're out there, you've got to help me because my life is a mess and I don't know how to resolve this. And I think over time that prayer was answered because then I moved back home and I started to pay off my debt and sort of get my life together and then at the end of that process um around age 24 i thought you know what i grew up in the church and i had that relationship as a kid but when i was in my teens i was like this is not cool for me and i defected but something called me back and so i went on that journey to reaffirm my faith so then i fostered this relationship with god in my own way through the alpha course reaffirmed my faith recommitted myself to being a christian and then, yeah, I just started to see my life unfold in different ways. So when you look back at that that year, because that's, I think that, I mean, I, I've been talking to quite a lot of young people, you know, and they're, you know, out of uni or not yet in uni. And there's so much fear and anxiety about are they going to get their life right? It's like this idea with young people that this is their only chance. Yeah you know yeah. um and kind of like you know that you know people ask kids what do you want to be when you grow up and then how are you following your life plan what are you doing about this thing or you when you look back at that period because that must have been rather scary and yet if it, you hadn't had that would you be the woman you are today i would definitely not change the timeline because i mm. think all those experiences have made me who i am today i always say to mm. my friends you know, you are the sum of your experiences, the things that you've lived through, the things that you've endured. That's that's what makes you you, whether they're good or bad. Mm. So I wouldn't change a thing because I think I needed to go through that process in order to understand what was important to me. And I'd grown up in a family where education was the number one thing, not that it was going to be the meal ticket for everything, but there was a real push in our family to try and strive to get to the highest point that you could from an educational mm -hmm. perspective. So I always knew uni was in my in my path. I just didn't know when, but I knew you've got to go to uni, you've got to get a degree. And then after that, obviously, 
try and be a doctor, an accountant, engineer, <laughs> or a lawyer. <laughs> All four if you can. <laughs> yeah. So, so when I look back on it, it definitely shaped me in so many ways. I learned to be more diligent about manage management. I learned to be honest with myself if in, in a crisis and actually face up to it mm. rather than bury my head in the sand, which I'd been doing about the debt I'd been accumulating whilst I was a student. But also I think I learned the importance of faith and how to cultivate a relationship where you, for me, my Christian faith is that I've got somebody who's got my back, basically. God's got my back. If I reach out to him, he will hear what I'm asking for. And if it's the right thing, you know, he'll support me and bless me with it. And if not, then he'll show me an alternative. So for me, it kind of gave me a toolkit for life. That whole period gave me a toolkit for life. And that's what I, I draw back on whenever I'm in tough situations. And just remember, you got through that. You can get through this. Yeah, that's amazing. That. So, mm. so, so, Reheba, you go back to SOAS, or yes, yeah, you go start again. Yes. Take yes. two. This is where going back to uni the second time was so profound on a personal level because I felt like I had the right focus because I'd gone to uni at nineteen, off the back of a divorce. Literally started SOAS in September. My parents had gotten divorced in July, so I was still reeling emotionally from all of that. And I just wasn't in the right frame of mind, I think, at the time to do well at uni. Yeah. But the second time around, age 24, I was really focused. I wanted it. And I, I thought, I'm not going to do anything else to jeopardize this opportunity a second time around. So it allowed me focus. That's what, that's what helped. Awesome. And what did you study? So I studied uh, politics and international development um, with a focus, obviously, on Asia, Africa, Middle East. Um, my aspirations were to go and work with an international agency. Mm -hmm. Now, I was aspiring for an organization like the United Nations, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. Um, and I sort of managed to do it for a bit. So I finished my course, went to Thailand for about eight months and worked with a local non-governmental organization that supported children and families affected by HIV and AIDS. So this particular charity was basically driving clear messaging around safe sex safe breastfeeding and just how to basically stay healthy even though you've got HIV. And that was really profound because I'd spent time in my degree course understanding health policies and health strategies for developing countries, but to actually physically see it and experience it with, you know, the locals in, in Thailand was really life-changing because I went to Cambodia and I met a woman who had nine children. She didn't know that she was infected until her husband was dying. And then she found out that obviously he'd been having extramarital affairs and that's how she'd been infected. And she was distressed because she had nine children and she was dying. And she's like, who's going to look after my kids? She was poor. She didn't have any other family relatives. And it was just, for me, it was seeing the forefront of what can happen to families when things like AIDS or HIV affects them. So then I came back to the UK and I was fortunate to get a role with the Department for International Development. So I was like, great, you know, I'm still on the international career track. This is brilliant. But I sat in Whitehall for 12 months writing policy papers about strengthening health systems in developing countries. And I felt very detached because I thought, I've just come back from Thailand and I watched a woman die mm -hmm. because she doesn't have access to healthcare and she doesn't have the resources to look after herself or her family. And we're writing all the reports and commitments and how is that gonna change that woman's life if we write a report? So I became a little bit disillusioned with the international development movement. And I thought, are we really going to make a change? Can we really make a change? And if we've been doing it for this long, why are things not changing? So um, I don't know whether it was serendipity, but the government changed at the time. It was Labour government and then the Conservatives came in. So I lost my job because I reshuffled everybody. And so I had two weeks to find a new role. And I ended up getting a job with the Department for Health, helping them develop an IT website. And that's really where my IT career started in terms of where I am today working for Accenture. It was purely accidental, but I think if I'm honest, I still have a passion for development and I still in the back of my mind one day want to find a way back in mm. because that's what I studied and that's what drove me to go to uni. I always wanted to do something where I could give back to my home country in some shape or form, whether physically living in Kenya and working there or being outside of the country and being able to support it in some way. And I still have ambitions to do that. I just need to figure out how. But um, that was probably the reason why I went to SOAS, to do something to contribute to the world, but also to study the subject that would 
tangibly helped me to be able to do that. But that is, um, that's really interesting what you say about your ambitions, because I think that's a, that's a function of a lot of the women we've been talking to who recognize that throughout their productive years, they can have three, four, five careers and mm. seemingly different from each other, but actually connected and so I'm, I'm interested to hear you say, you know, you have plans to get back into development, back into maybe even living in Kenya and all those things are possible. And I, I really believe that one thing is always the stepping stone to the next. Um, and you've talked yeah. about how you've, you set intentions and then these come into fruition. So really hoping that whatever yeah, you're we'll doing you now, Kenya. but I mean, how, on kind of as a segue, but how how do you do you think that maybe that background is what is feeding your passion to be a diversity and inclusion champion, and not to jump the gun, but just if you could answer me on that one, you know? Yeah, definitely, definitely, because I think we live in a multicultural society in the UK, so we have that advantage of having lots of different cultures, depending obviously on which part of the country you live in. But for me, the reason I've been so passionate about ethnicity for the role I do at Accenture is that I've experienced it in, in different forms. I've experienced the, the positives of being a minority and I've experienced the negatives of being a minority. And I've experienced them both, not just as a, a person, but as a woman. And so I have a real passion to pay it forward with the future generation so that they can learn from some of my experiences, whether good or bad, and be able to have a more positive or better experience as they navigate the world that they're now going to be living in, because obviously the world and society changes um, throughout history. And so for me, I feel like I had some negative experiences that I want people to avoid. So I want to share my experiences on that basis. But equally, I want people to understand how to take advantage of the resources and the opportunities that they have. Yeah. Because, for example, working with graduates, Many of them have not heard of a company called Accenture, mm. that's fair enough, but they sometimes don't appreciate the position that they're in and how that can elevate them for their future. And so maybe I'm like they're social conscious, but I'm there to sort of say, guys, you know, mm. this could be a great opportunity. Don't squander it and tap into the resources of other people like myself who've walked the path before you to be able to help you succeed. So I think for me, my passion now, even though the development is sort of on the shelf, is about how do I get young people from an ethnic minority background, not necessarily black, but ethnic minority background, to understand that you can step into a corporate space, you can be part of that fabric, and you can succeed as well if you pursue your own interests within those spaces. You know, we have a right to also be in those spaces. They're not exclusive to certain groups. And so it's being able to land that message in a way that's tangible for the young people, because obviously we're of a different generation, different mindset. I think I grew up with a generation of get a job, stay in it, retire, and don't mess it up. But as you said, a lot of people have the opportunities for yeah. multiple careers and multiple experiences. So I think I just want to give people that understanding so yeah. they don't feel limited, they can see the opportunity. Yeah. I, I absolutely love that. Do you have, when you look at yourself as a, as a uh, black female in tech, have mm. you seen, over the past 14 years, have you seen that, um, grow in representation um, are there more black women is it, I mean like is it ha, what is the black female experience yeah. and, and what is yours as well I know I jumped the gun well, yeah. I'm, I'm curious to know <laughs> about your great. experience particularly in, in this and for anybody who doesn't yeah. know about Accenture this is one of the top four or five global consulting firms um, it's, it's top tier it's very difficult to get in um, and they operate at the highest professional levels, so the barriers barriers to entry are quite high, and also the the career path is you know it, it's a very challenging one. So talk us through that. Yeah. So I had never worked in consulting before I joined Accenture. Um, just to kind of give you a potted history of my professional experience, finished uni, went to Thailand, worked for a non-governmental organisation, came back, worked for the UK government. Then I worked at British Gas, then I worked at Mars, which manufactures Mars and Snickers, then I ended up at Accenture. So I sort of landed these big roles in these big organizations. And mostly my hot tip is LinkedIn. 
um, it really kind of helped me to elevate my career. But getting into Accenture... And although I will say, because I, I've been your friend in that journey from mm. pre-Thailand, you're also very committed to self-development. Yes. You're very, very committed yes. to improving your skill set. Yes. Um, and, and I, you know, it's not just... You didn't just write a nice LinkedIn bio. You really set... Yes. A, a, an intention and a mission to get the skills required to go where you wanted to go yeah I kind of think I identified the opportunities of what I wanted to pursue and then I thought how do I get there and that's kind of been my blueprint but getting into Accenture was a tough one I'd actually applied to Accenture when I was a graduate so when I was doing my undergrad they had a summer internship program which supported their international agenda Davos and kind of global economic outlook so I was like great I'll get an internship I can work at Accenture and um, they sent me a rejection letter saying, sorry, you've not been successful in your application. And it was funny. I just remember sitting on my bed and I wept. I think I wept for like an hour because I was like, why do they not want me? I'm studying international development. I'm a black person. You know, I'm international. I'm from Kenya kind of thing. But um, I got over that. And so years later, when I went back, so I started Accenture in 2015. When I went back and finally got a role, I was like, I'm out of my depth. That was the first thing I thought. I thought I'm an imposter. I'm a fraud and they're going to find me out because yeah. I've been working in-house at Mars and at British Gas and all these other you know, companies. I hadn't been a consultant facing off to clients and telling them I'm the expert in what you're trying to do in your business and I can hold your hand and guide you through it. So the first um, first couple of, couple of years were tough because I just had this massive imposter syndrome. But just... As part of the entry into Accenture, I'd had a bit of a traumatic experience at Mars where I'd had a racist manager uh, and I couldn't quite pinpoint it, but I just, there was always an undercurrent. And so it got to a point when things came to a head and they wanted to put me on what they call a performance improvement plan. So he was challenging my performance, even though for 18 months there'd been no complaints, but all of a sudden there was a complaint. So um, I sort of weighed up the situation. I thought I could try and do this, but this guy clearly doesn't want me in the business, doesn't want me in the company. So I resigned. And at the time I didn't have a... Okay, can we can we just Sorry. stop right here, please? Because this is this is quite a brave thing to do. So you recognised the resistance to you. A lot of people would push, just, you know, put their head down, go for it, just say, look, you know, I'm going to stay here. Uh, obviously, I'm going to fight for this. I might not get anything else. But you actually resigned. Yeah, I resigned because I saw the writing on the wall in the sense that I thought if I pursue this, he was going to completely erode my career. He was going to muddy it yeah, yeah. and I would never be able to get back into IT or even just move forward with another role or career. So I thought rather than let somebody else have that control, just step away from it. Just step back. Even though you want to prove the situation and what you think is going on, just step back from it and regroup and tackle it differently. So I resigned with no job to go to, but I knew that I had a three month notice period. So at least I'd have three months of pay that would kind of carry me through until I found a role. So this was December 14. Um, and then I just started applying for roles and I got the interview with Accenture the following March, um, had the interview with the managing director. Um, I think that was probably my first understanding of the corporate culture. Cause when I turned up at the interview, he said, oh, there's gonna be role play. I'll give you a case study. And then, you know, I'll ask you questions and you answer. And rather than, you know, taking stock of the moment and the situation, I said, oh, brilliant. You know, hopefully I'll win an Oscar. And the guy's face was just like. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, okay, we don't joke here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Serious. So, um, I kind of understood then, you know, your sense of humour might not necessarily <laughs> work in this organisation. So we did the interview and then about a week later they called me in and said we'd like to offer you the role. And I was, I was elated because obviously coming up back off the back of Mars, no job, all that kind of stuff, it was really traumatic. But in parallel, I'd, the whole situation at Mars had threw me into counselling because I started questioning myself. I was paranoid. I was like, I couldn't trust anyone because oh, yeah. I just thought they're all out to get me. So I went into counselling to try and resolve the Mars stuff, but I ended up having two and a half years of counselling for other things, which was brilliant. Best money I've ever had. Okay, spent. sorry. I know I know you're telling a story, but I've got to stop here because this is. I think this is a gem because you're not just... I think sometimes we look at things separately, right? Mm. We think, okay, I'm going to get my career... And then I have my personal life mm. and then I have my history somewhere else and I have my future somewhere else. But the fact that, you know, you went into counselling 
because of your experience in Mars, and as you said, you know, it's lots of other things going on. Mm-hmm. How much of sorting your emotional, um, mental life impacted your career and vice versa? I mean, like, do you do you think you'd be able to get so far career wise if you had neglected your emotional and mental well being? Okay. So, um, yes, the counselling definitely supported what I wanted to do in terms of career because I think you know we're 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 not one-dimensional as people Mm -hmm. you know you've got your mental health your emotional health your kind of social life your family life your friends all of those things come together to make who you are as as a person and I recognized that I'd had trauma at Mars I think at the time I just thought they're just being a bit mean but when I actually resigned that was when the penny dropped and I thought this is actually something quite significant and if you don't address it it's going to hinder you going forward so that's why I made the time and the investment to pursue that but the reason it was also important is that I walked into Accenture with massive imposter syndrome Mm. massive emotional trauma from what had happened at Mars and really the first three to five years of my career Accenture I was on edge Mm. I was paranoid Mm. every day somebody said can we have a word I thought it's something about my performance, I've not done something right, they're going to fire me. Now, the story gets interesting because... Man, that's harsh. That's hard. <laughs> I was on edge. Years. That's yeah. a long time. Three to yeah, five years, I was time. constantly thinking they're going to find out, they're going to know I'm not an IT consultant, and they're going to fire me. I can relate so, to that. I can relate to yeah. that. It's tough because mm. you walk into work every day, question yourself mm-hmm. for the full, full day that you're there, and then when you leave... You ruminate over everything and you analyze it. And you're like, did I say the right thing? Did I say the wrong thing? So mentally and emotionally, it was quite draining. But luckily, I had the counseling. And one of the key things that she taught me was, what's the evidence? What is the evidence for what you believe about yourself? And that, for me, has been just one of the key things that's been a game changer in how I you know, address and navigate challenging situations. You know, if I think, oh, I'm stupid, I'm like, well, what's the evidence? You know, what have you done to make people think that of you? Or is it actually true? Because sometimes we create a narrative in our head about what the circumstance is, but the reality, that's not the circumstance. It's yeah. in our head. Can we just hashtag so... that, please? What's the evidence? <laughs> yes. That is just... What's the evidence? Oh yeah. That is just amazing. Brilliant. Now, Love listen, I, yeah. I, I do some mentoring as well. I, I mentor um, startup founders, um, African women, and I'm definitely putting that in into my book of tools for, <laughs> for women when they're feeling self-doubt. What is the evidence? Yeah. That's what just is the amazing. Evidence? If you take that approach, you suddenly you unpack it and you realize, actually, you're probably responding more on an emotional level than a fact-based mm-hmm. level where somebody has said something and you can tangibly say, okay, that's true or that's not true. When you focus on, well, is this, what is the evidence? Then it kind of helps you to dispel the fears or find a different way to navigate whatever anxieties you have. So that's one of the things I used. And then obviously joining Accenture, I think the first time I experienced being an ethnic minority in my industry was probably British Gas. I went to a training course on SAP, which is a software that we um, provision for our clients uh, to run their businesses. And there was 20 men in the room and just me. And I asked a question, <laughs> I put my hand up Minority on every level. and I was dismissed by the course tutor, who was a man. And I just thought, mm. you all don't see me. I'm in this room physically with you, but you don't see me. And it was distressing at the time when I actually, I quietened, I sort of made myself small, I quietened. I, for the rest of the week, I just sort of turned up, listened to the lesson, took my notes. I didn't really ask questions, even though I had a ton of questions. I thought, I've already been dismissed. I don't want to have that humiliation again. So I kind of just navigated it quietly. And then when I joined Accenture, one of my first major projects, I turned up on the first day and the client said, you will not succeed and I will make it my business that you don't succeed. No! And I was like, wow. I don't Damn. know if this is because I'm a woman, if this is because I'm a black woman, but yeah, so the first six months were hellish. She didn't learn how to pronounce my name. Which and I just which to... one? Which name? Which which of you? It's, it's funny. Not, I mean, yeah. it's, it's something. Shabaya. Simple. I <laughs> yeah. said to him every time we'd meet, I'd remind him, but he just he settled on Rihanna. He called me Rihanna for the whole time I was on the project, and I was there for eighteen months. Dude. So I was like, oh, I wish I was a rock star with all this money, because wow. then you know the name would work. Wow. Um, 
so that was one of the challenges that I really faced earlier on where somebody had just not known me this was day one literally Monday morning turned up and he's like you will not succeed and I will make it my business if you don't succeed um and that was quite challenging but then I just thought I've got a whole Accenture team behind me who believe in me if this is one person on the client side that's fine we can just navigate and manage that on a on a one-to-one basis so were you able to take that experience to your management to your leadership and actually Yes, because yeah. things escalated where he started to sort of physically, sexually harass me. And so initially, like, just inappropriate touching. Initially, I thought, mm, should I say something? Should I not say something? I don't want to be like, you know, the black woman mm-hmm. making noise. Mm-hmm. Um, people are just not going to believe me. They're going to believe him and think that I've kind of cultivated the situation. But one of my colleagues said, you have to report it. You can't just sit on this because we don't know how many times he's done this before and he could do it again. So when I talked to my manager, he was very understanding, very supportive. He said, look, whatever you need, I will give it to you. Do not worry. So he went and spoke to this individual, explained to them our policies in terms of Accenture about how we you know, respect individuals and treat people in the workplace. And um, the client said, OK, yes, I'm sorry, you know, I won't do it again. But then came and, you know, confronted me and said, why have you complained about me? You know, why did you make this such a big deal? And I was like, because you crossed a boundary and I wasn't comfortable. So I had to address it in some way. But again, I think because it was a manufacturing environment, very male dominated, maybe their mindset and their culture was just different. But I had to stand my ground on that principle. And I said, look, I, I raised the complaint. I'm sorry that you're not happy about it, but it's a fact. This is what happened. And there was witnesses when it happened. So it was just not me making it up. But again, it just added more tension to our dynamic. It made work more difficult. But that was sort of towards the end of me coming off that particular project. So I just mentally said, just get to the end, end date, and then you don't have to see this person again. And so this is now, you, you've, you've found your ground, you found your footing within, within Accenture. You are progressing professionally. We've, we've surpassed the five years of imposter syndrome. the winter of imposter syndrome and and now you are you know gaining in confidence and talk talk us through how you eventually got to the point where you're now a leader you are champion champion in diversity and inclusion you are participating in so many different uh, activities to uplift the black woman i would probably ascribe my confidence in Accenture it's probably something that happened actually quite earlier on when I joined the company but talking to you now I'm starting to connect the dots um so in Accenture we have a model where somebody sort of serves and supports you as a career coach and so my first career coach that I was matched with was this lady called Charlotte and she was amazing she'd been in the business about 16 years and rather than just kind of go through the perfunctory you know this is how things work and this is where you can find x y and z she literally took me under a wing and said, I'm going to help you navigate this business and understand how we work. And she held my hand to the point that I think in my first week, she basically set up all these calls for me to meet all the senior leaders in my directorate. She's like, I want you to meet all these people. They need to know who you are. And what was really strange was going into Accenture from a CV perspective, they were like, she's an A-star student. You know, she's amazing. We're so lucky to have her in our business. She's going to really help us succeed. And, you know, off the back of Mars, where I was like an E or D student, you know, she's at the bottom of the rung. She's rubbish. You know, we can't trust her to do anything. So navigating those two was quite tough because I was like, on one side, I know I'm good. But on the other side, the message is you're not good. So reconciling that, that's why it took sort of three to five years, because I was always struggling with that on a daily basis. But as a black woman, Charlotte made the difference for me because she taught me to be fearless to interact with senior leaders. And once I understood that, I was able to interact with senior leaders and effectively ask for what I wanted in terms of the things that were going to help me move my career forward, but also understand that there is a dynamic, there is a system. And if you understand the system, then you can effectively position yourself in the places you want to be for the type of work you're doing, the type of clients you're working on, just even your social circle in the workplace. You know, you can navigate into those rooms that maybe you think are closed off. And so rightly or wrongly, that exposure just 
gave me a confidence boost, I think. It gave me a confidence boost. And so now when I think about my internal network, I know quite a lot of senior people, but it's not been a kind of conscious, I'm going to go talk mm-hmm. to this person because they're senior. It's been quite organic for me. And I found it, I found the networking piece second nature, maybe because I'm quite sociable, but I found it quite easy to be able to connect and build relationships with people, both internally and outside the organization. But I think also as a black woman, I've had a lot of advocates. I've had a lot of people who've stood behind me and said, we believe in Rahema, we think she's good, we think she's talented, and we want to invest in her growth. And I think- Can I just ask you, when you look at your, I love that, that you've had lots of advocates as a black woman, because Mm -hmm. I don't think that's necessarily a very common story, right? So to hear that, I'm really curious, when you talk about advocates, or if you look at them, are these predominantly other black colleagues, or have you had across the board? Yeah, it's been across the board. It's been across, I'd probably say, 70% have been white and the rest have been non-white in whether Caribbean, Asian or African. Um, and it was mostly women. I had a few men, but mostly okay. women who mm. maybe understood or saw, I think a lot of times when, for me anyway, when I mentor and coach people, you recognize something of yourself in that person. And I think that's where you connect and then you want to basically help that person to succeed in their endeavors. So for me, I had a lot of women who advocated for me I had one woman who's a managing director and um, we went on a training course and she said, you're not an imposter. You have earned the right to be here on this training course, in this company, in the role that you do. Never forget that. And so having this messaging come from other successful women gave me a bit of a roadmap and a blueprint to where I could aspire to go to. But it also helped me to understand that at all levels of an organization, people have some level of imposter syndrome, some level of yeah, struggling yeah. with confidence. It's not just unique to you and it, it doesn't just rest at the lower levels of an organization. Mm-hmm. It transcends mm-hmm. all career levels. And once I started to understand, to understand that, I could confidently walk into spaces and be like, okay, I might not know what I'm doing or I might not fully understand it or I might have a bit of a wobble confidently in, in terms of doing this, but I've got a whole team behind me, whether they're tangible or not, whether they're real or not, in the sense of how the system and the organization works, they're behind me. And if I want to go and pursue something, I can. And I think that's been the driver that's kept me at Accenture, because I know there's such great opportunities. And if I just decide the path I want to follow and ask for the advice and the guidance and the advocacy and the support, then I know I can get to those places or into those rooms or into those spaces. It's worth underlining there the the need for um, relationship building because it's not just about, you know, there's so many elements to this. The first one is obviously you have the, the right skills to do the job. So on paper, you actually can, can do the job. That helps. Um, and then it's about building the networks with the people who can speak on your behalf, the adv- advocates. But it's also about being a good team player within your team so that to, to, to the extent that those people can su- actually support you, the people who witness you doing the job on a day-to-day basis, whether it's people who work with you, for you, or the people you work for, all of those people kind of need to be comfortable in the relationship so that they can step up and support you. Because there will be the wobbles, you know, there will be the days when we underperform. Um, but it, it is like having people behind you isn't a guaranteed thing. It's It's backed by actually being a good team player and also reciprocating the support as well and backing yes. backing others I found I think and it's, it's literally just like nobody having a bad word to say about you nobody having the the backing within a corporate environment anyway um, to mm. to walk away I think people feeling compelled to to help you and feel, wanting to actually help and support you I think that's so so important yeah. And I love the fact that you, you're not afraid to ask Ooh. for it. Because I think that's the other thing. It's like feeling like we don't, you know, one, you know now that you're able to go into these rooms and deal with people on senior senior levels. But two, also, you're not afraid to ask for the support. Yeah. Which I think, I think that's so important. Sometimes we're so, you know, we, we feel with imposter syndrome, the idea that if I ask for help, then they're going to know I'm not good enough. So... It's almost like self-sabotage, but mm. to be able to say, look, I need support in this mm. is really empowering. Mm. I mean, that's, you know, it, it, 
it's it, the fear of vulnerability, but actually at the same time, what a way to to overcome that. But then you take all of this that you have learned and you're giving it away. Yeah. You know, you're you're um, you're paying it mm-hmm. forward. And why think, why does that matter to you so much? Because I once sat with two graduates who joined our organisation when I first joined Accenture, and uh, we were just sat at dinner. We'd been out. We'd been at work, we were just sat at dinner talking about career aspirations. One of the one of the guys was a white guy, one of the guys was a black guy, Nigerian guy, um, born and raised here in terms of Nigerian. And um, we were talking about career ambitions. I said, oh, you know, do you think you could be a managing director one day in Accenture? Because that's obviously our highest, highest career level. The white kid did not hesitate. He was like, yep, I can do it. I definitely want to do it. It's on my pathway. The black kid hesitated. He was like, I don't know if I can be there. And I said, why? And he goes, because I don't see people like me who are there. And so for him, it felt out of reach because he didn't see anybody who was there. So for me, as much as I can, I want to give people an example of what you can be. I'm not saying be exactly like me (laughs) because we're all individuals. But if I'm in a space and somebody's thinking, can I be at that level in in my career? Can I be that type of person? I want to show them. And I think... We don't typically come across black women who work in IT delivery and work for, you know, a top 10 global consultancy. You just don't see that. And often when I say to people, I work at Accenture, they're like, what's that? (laughs) So a lot of people don't know about these companies. And I think for me, the biggest drive I've had is um, back in 2020, there was an event that was hosted for all the big corporations in London during COVID. And it was basically like a virtual summit for all the black professionals who work in FTSE 100 companies and I remember being on a zoom call and there was a thousand people on that call and we were all black and we were all black professionals in the city Mm. and I remember thinking this is a powerful moment because I would have never met all you people in my everyday wanderings around the center of London but I'm on a call and these are not people who are like you know executive assistants or you know working in the post room these were senior people we had directors from Rothschild which is like the most established bank in the world and I was like you're a senior person working at Rothschild like I didn't even know there was black people at Rothschild (laughs) so it was just those kind of concepts that's what propels me forward when I have those moments and those experiences and I see these young kids coming into an organization because we take on apprentices so we take on people age 16 you've left school and are wanting to start in the world of work and they come to Accenture and obviously we're a huge global corporation so how do you help somebody like that feel like I belong here and I can be successful here and that's what drives me because I've I've experienced that feeling I know that feeling I know how it can be debilitating but also I know how it can be empowering so if I can offer one or the other I want to advocate and support these people so that in the future we normalize black CEOs it's not something that's unique we just exist in these spaces in these companies and we're doing our thing and slaying so that's that's what drives me mic drop it's a few years ago I attended um um a presentation by PwC two black uh professionals within the city and they talked about how the problem the the how these you know, these consultancy firms or these uh, financial institutions are, are, are increasing their hiring of, of, of black graduates, their intakes of black graduates. Some of them are taking um, more convincing measures than others to actually recruit um, black graduates. But then they charted a path of their progress, their career progress from one level to the next. And the level of attrition um, of black employees at every level was to the extent that where you had let's say a hundred recruited one only made it to director level Mm. and so the question Mm. remained what what is it that makes you know um people drop off at that rate more more than other people sort of people of other racial Mm. backgrounds and one of them was Mm. that And and i had conversations with people and it's literally a case of saying I don't know. I, it's almost, it's so hard to visualize what it could look like if you've never seen anybody. And I, I'm just echoing that. And I had a conversation with a young woman whose name was also Daphne. And she said, she, brilliant woman. She had studied something like actuarial studies at Cambridge. 
And she was saying, I don't think I have a future here at one of these consulting firms. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why? Of course you have a future. And it was just so sad. It was really, really sad to see. So it's, it's good that, you know, you're, you're doing that. And I hope more and more people. And I think that with the diversity inclusion movement, um, which has picked up obviously after the Black Lives Matter movement. You see so many people yeah. on LinkedIn who are DEI champions. Is that working? Mm-hmm. Your view from the inside now, you're a, you're a DEI champion or leader. Is it having impact within, generally within, these, in the, within the corporate world? Do you, do you think that it's a genuine and sincere um, path yeah, I think I think a lot of companies are recognizing the benefits of diversity, not just from a, the makeup of your business in terms of the people in the business, but also how you engage with the outside world. So, for example, we mm-hmm. as Accenture are a global consultancy. We work across different countries. So there's a real drive from our leadership to ensure that our people reflect the environment and the clients and the type of businesses that we work and support. I think for me, what I've seen in the eight years I've been at Accenture, I've seen more diversity in terms of the intake of people we're getting. Mm. I think we still have a way to go to, to kind of increase the diversity across all our career levels. And I think similar to the PwC report, I think a lot of companies see a bit of a drop off at certain points when people are trying to progress their careers. Um, and partly it's just, for me, it's two things. What's the USP of being in that organization mm. for that particular individual? from an ethnic background. And then secondly, what can you do to support their development and growth without them feeling like they're getting special help? Mm. Because I think sometimes as black people, if you're singled out for a leadership program or Mm. for some sort of initiative, you feel like, well, what am I on this? Because I've got special needs, (laughs) I need special help. So for me, if we can just normalize that those things are not because you need special help, it's just because somebody has recognized your talent and wants you to succeed, then I think we can shift some of the mindset. Because I think some people are resistant in terms of ethnic minorities to getting those kind of opportunities because they feel like it's special Ooh. help so they don't want to be singled out. Yeah. And it's a- that that is such a that's such a I love that point because I do think there is an idea of um, you know, and I think we've seen it with um in certain in certain spheres where it's like um, well, they only mm-hmm. got the job because they're black mm. or they only got the job because they're a woman or whatever. So the fear then associated with that, and I, I think we could do a mm-hmm. whole episode actually about this topic. It's so interesting. Mm. Um, and there's so much that we have to unpack um, with you still. I am so aware of time and I don't want to say goodbye. We'll have a part but, two. Um, <laughs> I think we do have to have a part two, Miss, Miss Shabaya. And on that note, that Rahema, you know, just to throw it in there because, you know, it's really important information. <laughs> Rahema did all of this as a young, single black woman mm-hmm. living in London. Mm-hmm. Um, and you navigated this sphere. You were, you did it on your own, you know, you, you, you did it. And, 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 um, last week you got engaged. Yes. Yes. I'm engaged. <laughs> <laughs> show us the ring, show us the ring. Yeah. Um, and so we are so happy for you. We're so happy for you, what you've accomplished career wise, what you've accomplished personally, you. what you've accomplished with, you know, and just listening to you, it's so inspiring. And the, the reality of, um, integrating all parts of your life mm. and, Thank you for being so honest about your story from, you know, because it is the idea of, you know, quitting college is quitting college, isn't it? Yeah. It's terrible. My parents you know, were like, just, what? Yeah. Yeah. Your life is, <laughs> your over. Life is over. Your life is over, yeah. dude. But look at you. Yeah. Your, your life was just Ooh. beginning and you've made a beautiful, beautiful um, picture yeah. of your life. Thank for you. Which we are so grateful. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. But I've also had a lot of, I've had a sisterhood, so it's not just been me. I've had my friends, yourself, Eileen, kind of supporting me. So um, I think if you're a black woman trying to make it in London in your corporate career, you definitely need a sisterhood, but you also need, as I said, all those other advocates around you. You need a board of directors to help you navigate the world. Love it. Mm -hmm. What an inspiring story. Thank you, guys. I've really enjoyed the conversation. So, um, yeah, hopefully we can do it again soon. (laughs) Absolutely. <laughs> yes, I'd love to come back on. Um, it's been a real pleasure. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Rahema. 
special thanks to Ayozi Apolodine for our artwork and Crack the Window for our theme music. This episode was edited by Marcus Root. Our website is sofullypodcast.com. Check it out for show notes and links. Please subscribe to our podcast on most podcast platforms and watch us on YouTube. Thank you for listening. And until next time, we're Sofully Yours.